This morning, as promised, we're going to continue our journey through the sanctuary, and we've come to the most holy place. Am I doing this right? I got to make sure. Ah, that would help, huh? Perfect, thanks. Imagine with me that we are Bedouin travelers wandering around the Sinai Desert. It's about 3,500 years ago, and we've come upon an Israelite encampment where, according to God's plan, a sanctuary has been built so that he could dwell with them. As we approach this camp, there's nothing to tell us of that splendid, exquisite building just so nearby. Though it was ornate and radiantly splendid inside, from the outside, there's nothing that would draw attention to it. However, our attention is drawn to the odor of incense wafting over the desert air. Turning to see where it's coming from, we notice a large cloud in the distance. Now, that's not a sight you see in the desert very often. With the promise of water, we turn to go toward it, hoping that we can fill our empty water skins. As we approach, we notice countless tents laid out in exact order. And there is a fresh supply of water right near the mountain where hundreds of thousands of sheep and cattle and goats are grazing. Under this cloud that protects them from this desert sun, and us too. What we do not see is probably the thing that would have amazed us the most. As Bedouin travel travelers, it would have stunned us even more to understand that this is the very place that was designed to provide rich blessings from God to us, too. We've been learning a bit about that structure that we call the sanctuary. God instructed his people to build it as his dwelling. Today, we're focusing on the most holy place. The sanctuary services represented a sinner's journey back to God, and it has been proven that one of the most successful ways to get people to memorize anything is through picture association. The sanctuary, as a picture story, helps us humans understand and grasp the many intangible principles of salvation and its development. Remember in Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, right away God illustrated the plan of salvation in the sacrifice of a lamb. It was designed to impress on them the heinous results of sin and to foreshadow the ultimate death of the Lamb of God. By the time the Israelites had spent 200 plus years in the pagan country of Egypt as slaves for much of that time, that impression was gone, and God knew his people needed a re-education of that big-picture plan of redemption. That's why when Israel limped out of Egypt with scars on their back and visions of milk and honey flowing in their brains, instead of taking them north to that promised land, he took them south to a desert around Sinai. 
to a quiet wilderness place so that he could deliver to this infant nation a powerful and enduring object lesson, one of the most powerful ever recorded. And he did it almost entirely through pictures, symbols, meant to teach them the sequence and plan of salvation. The beautiful thing about it was salvation was planned long before any human eye could even twinkle. That plan has been opening up to us as we have walked through the sanctuary in the last few weeks, and the illustration of what it means to us personally as it instructs us about the character of God, of his love, forgiveness, and power. In the midst of all that, the sanctuary points to an ultimate, predominant message that God wants us to comprehend. That message is fulfilled in the most holy place. It's a message of judgment in favor of God and his people, seen through his mercy. Our brief study today will only allow us to look at many glimpses of this journey that we began when we entered the eastern gate of the courtyard. Volumes could be written, and probably were on this subject, but they don't come near to exhausting the subject of the path that we are on that's going to lead through the courtyard of justification into the holy room of sanctification and our service inspired by it. Now as we enter the holy, most holy place, we are indeed on holy ground. Pray with me. Father in heaven, as we open up to learn about what you've pictured for us to know in this most holy place, we pray that your spirit will be among us, touch each one of us, that our minds and eyes and ears can be open to understand your great plan. In Jesus' name. The message of the most holy place covers an awful lot of ground, encompassing the Day of Atonement, the third angel's message, even our bridegroom's preparation for his return and our response, along with many other truths. But today we're going to try to just focus on this last room in the sanctuary and its contents. The literal Hebrew translation of this room is Holy of Holies, and it refers to a mysterious place that only the high priest could enter, and then only just once a year. The first thing that we're going to notice as we walk into this um, and looking at this big picture is that this room is in the shape of a cube. The Holy of Holies is 10 cubits wide, 10 cubits long, 10 cubits deep, 10 cubits, 10 cubits, all the way around. It's a cube. What that measures out to be about 18 feet in our American lingo. It's interesting to me that the most holy place um, represents God's presence, the housing of God's presence, and the city where God's throne is, the New Jerusalem, is also in the shape of a cube all the way around. However, it's a little bit bigger. According to Revelation 21, it's about 1,380 miles every direction. My brain can't wrap around that quite yet, but it is. 
The, um, sorry, the, the first lesson that I'm going to see in this room, Holy of Holies, is that God doesn't change. He's the same from any angle. Look at him from any direction. God is the same. Amen. Ephesians 3 reinforced this to me. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father, that you may be able to comprehend what is the width, the length, the depth, the height of God's love, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. And the most holy place draws us to that fullness of God as experienced nowhere else. To enter into the most holy place, we have to pass through a veil. This veil divided the holy place from the most holy, and it was made of linen woven of blue, purple, and scarlet. Now, those of you who know me know that I get excited about what colors and numbers and that kind of stuff point to in the Bible. Blue is a color representing law and commands and royalty. Purple is royalty, and red, scarlet, is sin. The king of heaven, in all of his loyal royalty, was the one who would deal with the red sin that's represented in this place. The veil of all of the parts of the, of the wilderness sanctuary was the clearest message from God of his love for the human race. But it's going to be almost 1,400 years until that message could be delivered. The veil was embroidered with figures of angelic beatings surrounding God's throne. It separated the holy place from the holy of holies, creating a place where the holy God could be divided from the sinner, thus protecting the sinner from the brightness of his majesty, the glory, and his holiness. Stepping through the veil, we're going to find yourself in the most sacred part of the tabernacle. There's only one piece of furniture here, the Ark of the Covenant. It was a chest about three feet, eight inches long, and about two and a half feet high. It was also two and a half feet wide. So it's really not a very big piece of furniture. Um, on either side of the lid of this ark were angels made of gold, pure gold, and focused downward, looking at the lid of the ark. They had their wings spread over the sacred box. The lid of the ark, of this Ark of the Covenant, was called the mercy seat. This is what the cherubim looked to, the amazing mercy that stood over the law of God. The law had been broken and meant death to the breaker of that law. How could mercy outdo the justice required from that broken law? And yet there it is, right there where God sits. The focus of the most holy place, the mercy seat, has above it what we have often referred to as the Shekinah glory. 
This is the English transliteration of the Hebrew word that meant dwelling, and it refers to the presence of God. We should note here that nowhere in the Bible is this word used. Um, it seems that man wanted some kind of word to represent the presence of God, and so it was later he came up with this Shekinah glory to give us an idea of what that was. It's pictured here, kind of small. Other pictures are a little bit better, but um, it doesn't matter what word we use. God said, there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony. The Shekinah was often pictured as a cloud or a pillar of fire to resemble to represent the glory of God. And it sat above and looking through the mercy seat. Inside the ark were the Ten Commandments on two tables of stone, written with God's own finger. It is extremely significant that the law of God was the first item placed in the ark of the covenant, immediately under this mercy seat. It was there to reveal who God is and explain the very essence of his character. Justice is demanded, and his mercy provided for that justice. Later, a pot of manna was added. You remember the food that God rained down from heaven to feed the Israelites while they traveled through the wilderness? That's the bread of life that came down from heaven to humankind. Placing it in the ark as a reminder that God provides for their needs and ours, both physical and spiritual. Aaron's rod was the next item placed in the ark. The, you remember the one that miraculously flowered and produced fruit when the tribes had questioned who it was that God had chosen to serve him as priest? That rod was dead and received new life. It's noteworthy that this new life is the final addition to the ark after the love expressed by God in his commands brought the bread of heaven to dwell with humanity, ultimately providing for that life. However, that's a question that's going to require a lot, or a discussion that will require many, many hours. Maybe we can cover more of it next week. But now I'm going to ask you, so what? Why does any of this matter to me? How does anything done 3,000 years ago or more in the Holy of Holies affect me today? The first thing that I'm going to try to face in this so what answer is the veil. It separated people from the presence of God because sin cannot continue to exist in God's presence. The answer is, and Jesus cried out in a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Amen. The love of God expressed in that veil is what was able to remove the separation that it represented, since the penalty for the reason of the separation had been paid. Amen. 
The veil was 60 feet in that temple then, was 60 feet tall and four inches thick. There's no way a human could have ripped that. So God had to destroy this barrier between himself and the sinner. Every follower of Christ can now approach God directly. God living with man. No separation. Let that sink into my consciousness for just a minute. You know, Ephesians 2 refers to this when it talks about how God seeks a more personal dwelling now. He wants to live in the lives of men and women who will allow him to enter by his spirit. As if that's not a big enough so what answer, there's more. The second so what that I noticed is that there's a curtains all around the, holy place, the most holy place on which are myriads of angels embroidered representing God's messengers who are around the throne of God worshiping him day and night and waiting to do his bidding. And most of that bidding, let's face it, is directed toward his other created beings, you and me. Um, but I believe that the thing that would have caught my attention even before these angels spread out on the, on the curtains would have been the glory of God present in this place. No other light was needed. For us to understand it better, however, we need to examine the only piece of furniture in the room, the Ark of the Covenant. What about it answers this so what question? The answer is related to what was inside the Ark. As we said, the first item placed in the ark were the two tables of stone on which God wrote his law. This underlines a very basic principle. When we come into the presence of God, we come into the presence of his character, of his law. It is the declaration of who he is, and it calls me to respond to him and one another based on its principles. God created us to discern right and wrong and understand its importance. In other words, we are made in his image. And we have moral sensibilities. That's why we have longings for something better than this world offers us. The world's sense of right moral living deflates God's plan down to do unto others as they do to you. However, When we come face to face with God, our moral responsibility to follow the right and shun the wrong is front and center. If we never face up to this accountability, we just keep on reaching out to God with one hand and pushing him away with the other. We continue to long for that companionship with him, and yet at the same time, fear that our secret flaws are going to be exposed, that God doesn't want us there with them. Guess what? He already knows them. And it is those secret flaws that qualify you to come into his presence for transformation. God's plan has been put in place to deal with those flaws as he matures his workmanship product And he begins it before we even recognize that those flaws are there. Until I came to realize that the law of God is kept, 
because of love to him. My law-keeping ability was more like driving the speed limit on I-75. I kept the law because I didn't want to pay the associated fine. Um, when I realized I had no love for God and to keep his law in spirit and truth required a love response, I recognized I was in deep, deep doo-doo. Very deep trouble. How does one learn to love God? Oh yeah, I hear you say, well, we love him because he first loved us. Great. I got this problem though. I've been loved by some people who I've never loved back. Okay, so that doesn't really answer my question well, that I love him because he first loved me. I had to recognize, first of all, that I am in not capable of loving, especially a holy God. That scared me into, that scared me enough that it catapulted me into a breakdown, a total breakdown where I was pleading with God that he show me how to love, especially to love him. As is typical of God, he sent a human to guide me to an answer that allowed the Holy Spirit to open up my mind and my eyes to see the magnitude of a God willing to give up his Godship and become a human forever, dragging me out of myself to become my brother and enable me to be a co-heir to what he, as the new Adam, would, who would stay true to God, provides. The sanctuary points to the plan by which Christ would become the new Adam to reverse the effects of the fall and reclaim dominion of the earth. Amen. Somewhere in this journey that I was on, my understanding just what God did and is doing to demonstrate his massive light, a light bulb went on. I started to comprehend in my consciousness that I could see that the unity of the three personal beings that composed the reality of who God is were split apart because of love for you and me. Rather than give up on me, mercy came to the forefront in the triune hearts of God, and I became the passionately pursued object of a fierce love that would not let me go. Amen. It was then that I could embrace the truth I loved him because he first loved me. Amen. I gained a new awareness of what John 3.16 really says. God, as the man Jesus, would keep covenant with the triune God to redeem my failure. Oh, sorry. And show me what love looks like in action. He so loved me with covenant faithfulness that he gave himself as God's son of promise, demonstrating what true sonship looks like, so that as I believe in him and am born again through him into true sonship, I don't need to be perishing under the covenant curses. 
but I have everlasting life. Yes, thank you, Jesus. By the way, this whole concept that we just were discussing is revealed in the jar of manna. Jesus came down from heaven with the food of life so that in him we can inherit life eternal. Now obedience is no longer the burden that I expected. It's more of a delightful joy to experience because God adopts me as his child. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. For those of you interested, that's Romans 8, 17. Bottom line is, God demands our obedience to the verbalization of his character, as inherited at my rebirth. And all of his biddings are enablings. I am an enabled because of his mercy that provides the power of grace to live in harmony with his character, in harmony with his commandments. And that, my friends, is what the dead rod speaks of. That dead rod that came to life says to me personally from inside the ark, it speaks of a love relationship with one who so loved me that he could not bear to exist without me. And that encourages a love response from me, producing desires for the same thing, and enables this dead body to live again, blossoming to bear fruit. God sees through his mercy seat to the law and recognizes that Jesus provided what I could not, obedience to that law. As we've been walking through the sanctuary, our hearts have been lifted in praise for the mercy that forgives our sin. When I read that, it immediately brought my mind to that famous bumper sticker, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Amen. Yeah, but is that the answer I'm looking for? Are Christians just forgiven? Is that really what we are? Yeah, it's true, we're not perfect. And yes, it's true, God provides forgiveness without exception to all who accept Jesus as their savior, period. But that's not the answer to the so what question revealed in the most holy place that's important to our Christian life today. Are Christians just forgiven? I think so, I think the Bible points to more. According to John 10.10, Jesus came to this earth and died not only to provide forgiveness, but also give us life and give it abundantly. So why does forgiven sin need attention? You know, the proper disposal of waste is imperative to human survival. Governments spend vast amount of money trying to collect transport, process, recycle, dispose of waste because they understand that it's crucial to safeguard the environment and for the health of their citizen. God also knows that sin excuse me, destroys life. Thus, before creating the universe, he planned to dispose of sin. He's not only interested in collecting 
and disposing of our moral garbage. He's not content with being the garbage truck that comes every other day to forgive our sins. God wants to exterminate sin along with the memory of it. That's why the most holy place speaks to us of a cleansing from sin. The possibility of a whole new life empowered by God. Heaven's good news is that through Christ's sinless life and his sacrifice on the cross and his high priestly ministry, sin will be exterminated forever. Us. This is the focus of the most holy place and answers the questions for me today. When the burden of sin overwhelms us, we come in faith to the genuine sacrifice of all sins. He forgives unconditionally, and then those sins are transferred through Jesus, our sacrifice to the heavenly sanctuary, and that record of sin remains there, even though forgiven by Jesus. Will that record of sin be cleaned out? Yep, the most holy place says so. Yeah. Says, therefore, it was necessary that the copies of these things that are in the heavens should be purified with these, the lamb. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices. Heaven will be purified of sin. Stay with me a minute. This is really eye-opening. At least it was for me. The day the high priest enters into the most holy place, he brings with him pure blood of a sacrifice representing Jesus' pure life and ultimate death. Only sprinkling of this untainted with sin blood could remove, blot out, cleanse from the sanctuary from me. This says that when my name is brought up to be determined for acceptance into the heavenly realms, Jesus steps forward and says, this is my child. She accepted my salvation. I died the death she deserves and paid the penalty due for her sins with my blood. Now, Father, by grace, I blot them out of the record forever. Amen. Hallelujah. You see, God's goal is more than forgiveness. His mercy and grace are sufficient to deliver us, not only from the guilt of sin, but from the domination of sin. Mercy pardons the penalty of sin. Grace empowers us to live in harmony with his character outline. Romans 11.27 reminded me that, and it guarantees, for this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sin, liberating us from enslavement to evil and preventing future bondage to it. You know, I still remember the decision I made almost 25 years ago to be rebaptized. The scripture that convinced me to do so was the verbalization of that covenant. I will put my law in her mind. I will write it in her heart and I will be her God, and she shall be my child. I will remember her sin no more. Amen. Amen. This is the purpose of the most holy place. 
it shouts out beyond the shadow of a doubt, God loves me and I am safe to love him. I could go on and on and on about how great God's love is, how great his mercy is, how great is his power in my life. All of that enables me to be a child of God. I hope you are starting to see more clearly what all of this means. God's solution shown to us in the Holy of Holies assures that our sins can be forgiven and removed, replaced by the righteousness of our substitute Jesus. We can come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have access to mercy because of Jesus. We have access to grace because of Jesus. We have access to promises because of Jesus. We have access to the very throne of God because of Jesus. The most holy place reveals that access and declares Satan's grasp on me is broken. That is the answer to my so what questions. Today, mercy is still there above and between God's presence and the outline of his character. Today is the day we trust Jesus to provide cleansing from sin. Today he lives in me. And today our faith puts us with Jesus in the most holy place. It's anchored there with him. Today by faith we enter the holy of holies. We take refuge there. By faith we look to Jesus to deal with the problem of sin. By faith we claim his promise of forgiveness and cleansing. The result, the result of that answer to the so what question lies in no more sickness, no more suffering, no more heartache, no more death, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more sin, no more sin in our lives, no more sin in the world, and no more sin in the universe. No more record of sin in heaven. No more sin anywhere, forever. Mercy provides the restoration of the Eden we missed the first time around, all because God was willing to rip himself apart to show that he loves you too much to let go. That's the decisive message of the sanctuary and the most holy place, and that is a big deal.